Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. Before we get into the episode, just a couple of announcements. We have about two weeks left to call in to the Google Voice number for the show and answer the question, what is your favorite prototyping tool or component and why do you like using it? The number to call is 1-725-222-8249. That's 1-725-222-TBGW. You can call in, leave a message answering the question, and that'll be up in the next contributor episode. The design contest is starting to pick up. We have 77 judges signed up and 61 games signed up to get notifications for when submission information comes out. So if you're interested in becoming a judge or submitting a game, you can head over to theboardgameworkshop.com. There's a link there to get all the information about the contest and you can sign up to be a judge or you can sign up to get alerted of when submission information comes out. There's also a practice judging form. So if you're interested in how the judging process works, either as a judge or a contestant, you can check that out. I'll be releasing some detailed information on round one submission soon. So if you are interested in that, you should definitely get on the alert list and you'll be notified when that's posted. This episode is the second in the Elegant Game Design series. If you haven't listened to the first episode, go back to episode 56 in January and you can listen to the episode about graphic design. This episode is on theme and illustration with Heather Vaughn and John Gilmore. And then we have two more episodes coming up in March and April to finish off the series. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson, and I am with Heather Vaughn, Associate Art Director and Illustrator for Silver Clutch Games, and Jonathan Gilmore, Head of Game Development at Pandasaurus. And we are going to talk about theme and illustration and how they can help with elegant board game design. Heather and John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Let's start with definitions for a theme and illustration. John, you want to start with a definition for theme as it relates to board games? Because I know it's kind of controversial and used incorrectly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I'll give you my personal definition. Um, the theme is, for me, what the experience that you're trying to communicate to the player. Um, a lot of times it will be you know, defined in kind of broad strokes, but then it can also be you know, based on an intellectual property or just, you know, something like, oh, this is a zombie-themed game. Yeah, so theme can encompass a lot. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about illustration in a minute. Um, but things as, uh, as far as, you know, the action supporting the theme uh, that the players take during the game or just the overall experience that we're trying to, you know, communicate to the players. Theme can be a very, very broad thing. It's a very tricky definition setting the art like everything comes into it really yeah absolutely um it's for me one of the most important things is making making sure that the actions that the players are doing support the theme sometimes you you have to throw in something for a purely mechanical reason but you know, personally i try to avoid that and make it so that when the players are doing the things that they do during the game they feel like they're fitting into the theme Right. And Heather, you want to give us a definition of illustration? Uh, yeah, um, so this is um, notoriously murky. People get all up in arms about art and illustration. Are they the same? Are they different? Um, all good definitions are murky. Yes. Um, so my personal go-to is that um, in illustrating illustrations, illustrators, it's uh, visual problem solving. Um, if art is an idea, illustration is... A, bringing that idea to like a depiction or an explanation. Um, uh, I kind of liken it to, you know, a Rothko is really cool to have in your house. It doesn't really tell a story. It maybe gives you feelings, makes you feel a certain way when you look at it, but it's not like the Sistine Chapel ceiling where you're literally looking at what, what could just be a very, 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 very fancy picture book. Like you were reading a story in pictures. So that's kind of uh, how I kind of chop the two um, up. So, yeah. Illustration is the depiction or explanation of an idea, and art's just an idea. And it's not good or bad. It's just all what you make it. <laughs> Interesting. I never I never heard that distinction. I definitely lifted that from somewhere, and I can't remember where, so sorry. <laughs> Those are places to start, and now we can go off on a tangent and ignore them completely. In my article, I had a couple of sections. The first one was first impressions. Theme and illustration, especially for first impressions, I think before anyone plays your game, before they read your rules, they're going to see your box, probably, or they're going to see pictures of game components online. Basically, the visual is the first thing they get. I think 
think relating that to elegant design, I think a very important part of making an elegant game is finding the right audience. If, you know, you have your three-hour space epic and a five-year-old is really excited to play it, they might not get the experience they were hoping for. But if you if you connect your game to the audience, they're going to love it. It could be terrible for someone and great for someone else. So I think like getting that across in the first impression is incredibly important and can be very difficult. Any thoughts on that? Definitely agree. Um, I kind of, I call myself game adjacent. I'm like a really, like everyone makes fun of me. I don't play games. Um, and getting me to play games is like pulling teeth. So my, my whole thing is I'm drawn to really good design, really good art. If the art catches my eye and it looks like something I'd be interested in, um, I'm much more likely to pick it up and actually sit down and attempt it. Um, so I have a game shelf downstairs full of games that I've actually cracked open and tried solely based on that art looks interesting. I can relate to that art. I think I know, I, th- I think I can handle this game. So that's like out- outside of even my profession, like as a, as a consumer, um, that, that absolutely is true. Um, I'm not going to pick up a game that looks like, um, like Warhammer, like that art, while very cool and interesting, like just doesn't speak to me. So I'm probably not going to pick it up. So it's it's interesting the way that works. John, anything to add? Um, I think for me, a lot of it falls into uh, setting expectations and subverting expectations. Um, and I and I like to try to do both. Um, you know, part of it is you know, like you said, the art should kind of tell you what is inside the box and what the experience is going to be. But I also like to try to um, you know, trick people a little bit. Like with Dinosaur Island, you know, every other work replacement game is like gray and boring. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to do a game that was bright and colorful and that, you know, uh, looked really good on the table. Whereas a lot of, you know, if you look at um, like the splatter games or things like that, they almost look like a print and play game. Um, but with uh, the theme, um, I like to explore themes in unique ways and again it is kind of about you know setting people's expectations but i want to give them a different experience uh, you know, as a designer i want to give them a different experience than they're going to get if they play somebody else's games like with you know dead of winter i really set out to make the zombie game that i absolutely wanted to make and i think a lot of people play it because it's a zombie game and they love you know like the walking dead but then find out that it's not the zombie game that they expect it to be. It's not really about the zombies. It's about survival. So I think uh, for me, a lot of times it's, it's a very pleasant experience when I go into a game expecting one thing and the, you know, the publisher or the designer, you know, hits me with a different experience than what I'm expecting. Although if you go too far, you're going to have problems. Although that's, that's the thing I've heard about dead of winter the most is everyone's. It's not just a zombie game because as you know, there are a lot of zombie games out there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, it's a conversation we had a lot during the development process was, do we keep this a zombie game? Um, but even every time we tried to retheme it, we're like, no, this is, this is what it is. It's a survival game with zombies as like the background noise. But yeah, like you said, you can, oh, I'm sorry, you can go too far. Um, and I think like that's a lot of the art of game design and illustration is like knowing exactly where that line is and disregarding some of the rules but knowing how to push you know that line as far as you can exactly i mean that classic thing in any sort of creative endeavor you have to learn the rules in order to break the rules correctly and you should not start off breaking rules it's going to be a mess (laughs) yep yeah or you know go for it whatever worst case you make a bad game (laughs) all right uh so the next section i had was engagement illustration and theme are both very strong here you can you can really pull a person into your game and that has all sorts of benefits from them just enjoying the experience more, but it can also, it can make learning easier. It can make the play smoother if they're actually involved in it and things are cohesive and make sense. Heather, thoughts? I, I Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, I think, speaking just from the art standpoint, um, that's, that's kind of what I think what we do. Um, the illustration is there to kind of enhance the words on the page and you know nobody is going to sit down and read a wall of text to play a game that's going to overwhelm people um maybe some people like that you know if you if you're like wanting to read like a textbook that's fine too but i think for a lot of games um getting people excited about you know what they're doing 
um, in the game. So it's like, oh, maybe I can flip through this book and see what my character looks like. Um, maybe it'll help me get into the, the theme a little bit more if I could like have a visual aid to, to kind of kickstart um, that. Like the kids on bikes, like that's, I think, really helpful in like, you know, some people like myself, I have a hard time getting into RPGs and like trying to, to come up with, you know, a starting point and, you know, visual art can do that for you. It can set a theme, it can flavor um, discussion and it can help bring the players around the table together in a cohesive manner because you're all, you're all looking at the same art and you're all feeling hopefully similar things when you look at it. Um, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. I actually, I get to see this a lot. And one of my favorite stories is with uh, dead of winter. I had a local play tester who probably played the prototype of it, you know, like 15 times during, you know, from when I started it to when it went to print. Um, and when I finally got my published copy of it and the same playtester played it, he was like, oh, I get it. Now it's a zombie game. And until he saw it with all the art and the graphic design and everything put together, for him, he never truly got the experience. Um, but other people can feel that, like even in a prototype, like they're like, oh, I get what we're doing here. Um, but it's a lot harder without all those other parts tying it together. The first game I worked on, uh, Beneath Nexus for Silver Clutch, that literally remember the first year, two years playing prototypes. And they essentially made the game for people like me that don't play games. So they're like, yes, Heather, play this. And I was like, what? It's all words. Like, man, like, with the stock clip art, I'm like, I don't want to. And I would just zone out and do that, like thing that you do you pull your phone up and you're not paying attention and I played it for the first time and I was like with the finished art and the box and everything and it was like a whole experience and I'm like oh oh this isn't so bad at all I can play this game this is okay <laughs> so yeah absolutely I mean I think having that vision and staying true to that vision is one of the hardest parts of you know running a publishing company which I don't do but you know I really respect like any company that I work with that can do that well to have that vision but uh, holding true to it's a tough thing to do mm-hmm. yeah, I think especially with RPGs having like even though to a degree the art the illustration doesn't doesn't matter to the game like it's very much I mean depending on how you play theater of the mind or minis or whatever but just having those little hooks like in the book to literally illustrate the examples or characters or what's going on can really help players have something to start from when they're coming up with characters or story or whatever. Yeah, we were super lucky to have Heather on board very early in the process. Like, I think we talked to you from Unpub that year. Yeah, I think. We were maybe like a quarter of the way done writing the book at that point. Yeah, and, it, and you know, especially I think it kind of hit on me because it's like, you know, okay, I don't play games. And, you know, I'm doing game art. But, you know, kids on bikes. Like, you grew up in a small town. You did kids on bikes. Like, that's what, (laughs) like, after school till, like, your parents yelled for you, that's what you were doing. So it's, like, a super fun thing to kind of be able to bring, you know, that feeling and that flavor to, you know, maybe something that's a little sci-fi, something that's way outside of my wheelhouse, like an RPG, and then, but feel, like, at home. And I know definitely playing it, it really helps kind of bridge that initial, like, anxiety that you have like oh god I have to make something up and oh god I have to keep like oh god I don't know if I can do this but it's like you know you look at your your players and it's like you know there's a little picture and it's like oh okay this is like me when I was 12 I got this yeah people people see that cover and they know exactly what they're getting into it in it and I think that speaks so much for uh the covers that you've done for it in part of engagement although I'd say this is a broader topic that covers all sorts of different issue, but representation in gaming is a very big topic nowadays, and there are a lot of changes happening and a lot more changes that need to happen. But I think it factors into engagement in a very real way, because if people see themselves represented in whatever way that is to them, it can really help you get into a game. It removes that disconnect if you feel more connected to the characters or the setting or the theme or whatever it is you're connecting to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I've had so many people come up to me after playing, you know, Dead of Winter, seeing the Kids on Bites art, and, you know, just say that it was important for them to feel connected to the game in that way. And, you know, that's when I really started to take a more serious look at it and say, you know, this... This is way more important. It's not important to me because I'm represented in 90% of the board games that come out to the market. But because these people coming up to me are saying it's important to them, I know that it's something that we need to strive for. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, just the nature of my job, 
if it's it's a kind of a fun in joke with illustrators like you you spend a lot of time alone so you're you know, taking photo reference of yourself and you end up drawing yourself into a lot of your work which is cool but also like not everybody's a 30 something white girl from Philly that that doesn't pan um so i think the first job i did for when i was working on beneath nexus um the developers were really big on hey all fantasy games are like western fantasy dragons knights princesses um why don't we make a conscious serious effort to tap you know other cultures um you know there's lots of cool stuff from africa south america you know, Native American, various Native American cultures. And it was like an aha moment. I think one of the first times, and it's embarrassing to say, one of my first times working in creative where I was like specifically doing this research to make sure that, you know, I'm making these characters that I'm maybe pulling from, you know, a couple different, because, you know, I'm not just drawing Aztecs. I'm drawing something similar to Aztecs because we're making it our own, obviously. But you know, you're doing all this research and you're learning all this stuff, and it's it's so much more valuable. Like I had people comment to us at conventions, like, "Yo, um, Varen, your Sikh um, tank healer. Holy crap, that's so cool! Like, he's a Sikh, and you got the symbolism." And I'm like, "Awesome!" And I'm like, really hoping I didn't like appropriate anything, but like. I, it was so fun to learn about all this stuff and you get, you get all the symbolism in and it's the same thing with like kids on bikes and other stuff like that it's like you can tap and pull from so many different spots and it's just you're doing a disservice I think if you're not looking at representation there's so much more richness you can bring to a theme for any content if you're just pulling from as much as possible and representing as much as possible the next category I have here is theme as heuristics are you familiar with heuristics? Ooh, I'm going to need a definition on that one. <laughs> uh, so the the short definition is uh, heuristic is a rule of thumb, and it's, it's basically a shortcut that helps you get through life because otherwise you would have to relearn everything all the time. So the example I used in the article was if you have a game about growing crops and in it you have seeds, players already understand that they have to plant the seed to grow the crop. So that's that's already ingrained in them from outside of the game world. It can also work against you if you don't plant the seeds and the seeds are just there to buy wood or something. That's going to be really confusing to people because that's not what seeds do. They don't buy wood. They make wood. So I think theme theme as a heuristic can be very useful in a lot of ways, especially for shortcutting rules or helping with the learning of rules, the remembering of rules. Like if, because people... You have tons of heuristics that you just have in everyday life going through all sorts of processes that you do. And if you tie that into your game, if things, basically if things make sense, if your theme lines up with any sort of real world activity and anyone knows anything about that, it can work really well. But it's very dangerous if you go against that. So make sure you know what you're using. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we as humans, and if you look at like the the study of like, um, you know, how people memorize things and function in that like we compartmentalize data uh, and unpacking that sometimes difficult but if i if i was to, s- to describe like my morning routine like when i just say brush my teeth even though that's multiple steps like we all understand just brush my teeth is a thing right and that's how we function with data because there's no way we could remember you know necessarily the the 50 steps something takes but if we can say like it's this one thing then it's much easier for us to like recall that and then break up the 50 steps. So we do that with games too, because that's just the way we think. So when you know, people complain about uh, having a hard time teaching dead a winner and I've taught it so many times, but the trick is like, you just tell them the actions. You're like, all right, here's what you can do on your turn. You can attack zombies. You can search, you can clean the trash uh, you know, you can move and then, you know, just really briefly break down those things. But with those actions being like things that they recognize and things that they think about uh, in accordance with the theme, it's super easy for them to say, okay, well, I want to search. Now I think about how to do that. And when, the, when they don't, when the actions don't compartmentalize like that, it makes a roadblock um, and in a higher cognitive load for the player which a lot of times translates to a bad experience play yeah i I would have to agree i think a part of like my personal consumption of games is a lot of robot blocks like that um being i'm pretty dyslexic so i have issues with like linear 
thinking and I have like order. So if I if I get kind of too front loaded with the, the minutia, it's definitely definitely gonna have a bad time. Definitely gonna feel really discouraged. And I think uh, illustration art can kind of help with that. You know, just designing things to make sure that it's um, readable, um, help compartmentalize things, um, draw attention to certain things to help you kind of find waypoints for when you're, when you're kind of bringing in that data. Um, it, like, again, it's, it's definitely something that takes the edge off of that anxiety for maybe players that aren't comfortable or, or new, I think, definitely. Well, and I also think, like, if you look at a game like Magic the Gathering, which has encyclopedias worth of cards and rules to remember, I mean, I'm betting that I could take a Magic the Gathering player and show them a picture of Sarah Angel, and they could recite to me exactly what it does. And it's because, you know, that picture matches that card and it helps them Recall. pull that up. Yeah, De- absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, I think magic's a particularly great example. And it's also a great example of bad things because a lot of the art, like I said, Sarah Angel, like any sort of bird, you're like, oh, that flies. I understand a lot of concepts about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but sometimes there's a thing that doesn't fly but it doesn't have legs and it's floating in the picture and you think it should fly or something. It's like a dragon, but it's a really tiny creature. (laughs) I mean, they don't have that disconnect nearly as much as they used to in the older sets when things were kind of the wild west of designing a game. I I think from what I've read, I think that's the thing that Mark Rosewater specifically started to try to fix at one point. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely better with the newer sets there. I think they're just much more aware of it now before. I don't think they had as good art direction. It was more like, Draw me a picture of a dragon. Right. Yeah. Here's a, here's a card name. Do it. Yeah. That's, I, I definitely can see that in some of the older stuff. It's just like, here is, you know, cool dragon number 26. <laughs> has nothing to do with the card. <laughs> I know this, like, I forget which edition was, but they, one of the cards is Ankh of Mishra. It's supposed to be an Ankh, like the Egyptian symbol, but the artist misread it and drew an Ark instead. Oh, no. And they, that went to print because that was the art they had. Oh, no. So Ankh of Mishra, giant boat. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, they, I think it was Legends. It was real early, but yeah. Oh, yeah. that's embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, now it's a great story because Magic survived, but a smaller game, that could be the thing that makes it not work, you know? Oh, just get picked apart mm-hmm. to death. <laughs> and the last, last section I had in the article, and then we can... Just go over a bunch of different stuff. But uh, illustration should be functional. So I think, I mean, where it's appropriate, obviously every game is different. But I think in some cases your illustration can help or sometimes even replace graphic design. Especially like things like maps. Mm. If you do different types of areas, like if you want a separation between two regions, you can draw a river or a mountain range. Mm -hmm. You don't need to make a line. Or you can make the line too and have them work together and just... You can build things like that in to help. And just like the way you do illustration, any sort of art, one thing you're thinking about is the flow of the person's gaze. And that matters immensely in game design. So if you want someone to look to a certain area, you you illustrate it so they do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's all about... I mean, that's that's the big separation there. It's like, it doesn't just have to look nice and be decorative. It can, but... If it's going to be illustration, it's got to it's got to earn its keep. Like I like to say, it has to earn its keep. Um, if even if it's something as simple as like a card, um, compositionally, does it draw you into the you know the scene? Like if I want if I want you to open up a, a, a rule book and I want you to really kind of like get down. I want to encourage you to get down in the nitty gritty. I want that art to make you feel like you're part of it. I want it to make you draw in. So you know, that's that's going to inform my composition. You know, there's definitely going to be something in the foreground, maybe somebody looking behind them at you, the viewer. So now you're part of the art um, to really bring you into it. And same thing if, like, you're, you know, you're designing, like, a map. Absolutely. Um, it's, like, such a cool way to, to kind of bring you into the game. It, a map can serve as just a device or it can serve as, like, hey, we are physically holding a map. <laughs> you know, and reading it and, you know, orienting ourselves like that's you're you're now in that you're, you're you know, you're directly tactilely experiencing it. It's not the game. You're actually mm-hmm. reading a map. So uh, definitely it's got to be functional. Um, doing too much definitely can be a problem. I, I know that sometimes you could just be completely inundated in the same way that you can be with text with art. Like it's just too much, too disparatic and you just get visually tired and that's that. And you don't want it anymore. So it's definitely got to be functional and you got to know when to, you know, 
add or subtract. Yeah, I think, and again, it's kind of about the barrier to entry on a lot of things, too. Um, but when a game is on the table, and, you know, it's a thing that um, some designers talk a lot about with uh, table presence. Like, the more the game looks like a living and breathing thing on the table and, you know, an actual object instead of some abstract representation of the thing it's supposed to be the i think the easier it is for the players and it lowers that barrier of entry a lot Mm -hmm. absolutely and i mean that's for elegant game design that's that's really the goal is lowering the cognitive load and lowering the barrier to entry so absolutely all this entire series is about so everyone's listening to all four episodes i hope (laughs) but yeah it's like take as much work away from the players you can that's like that's the big advantage that video games have I don't want to say always because early video games are pretty rough, but modern video games, you can take so much work away from the player that modern video games don't have rules. They might have like a, um, a tutorial level, but you don't read a rule book anymore. You just get in and you start playing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have a history of which buttons do what, and they don't often change that. So if you've come from other games, you already know. So there's the heuristics again. But video games have... A huge advantage because they can enforce the rules whereas with board games you can't you can cheat you can do things wrong you can really mess it up you can make up your own rules and have all sorts of fun but at any point where you make it difficult for people to remember those rules or a lot of work to manage the game state you're really taking them out of the game and you're making them do the work of the game instead of the work of the player mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it goes from playing a game to math essentially like that's how i dictate it like i've totally not like i've mentally checked out of games just because i'm not playing a game i'm literally just like frantically trying to figure out what the heck i'm supposed to do my next turn so i don't hold everybody else up you know and that's definitely not a place you want to be you want to be able to play the game not exist at a table trying to figure out what the heck you're trying the the activity in front of you (laughs) yeah yeah and i think uh, when it really becomes beautiful is when you can watch a player making decisions that aren't based on the mechanics and Mm -hmm. the the math of the game um and you know that's something that we with you know dead of winter and some of my other games that's something we worked really hard on was you know looking at a lot of the psychology behind uh you know gaming and those situations and how do we get players to drop that you know shield that they kind of build and do things based on like their morals and what they would do as a character and it's it's something that i think video games have done for a long time not a long time but they've been kind of treading that more and more and role-playing games have done it and there's no reason that we can't do it with board games too we just have to look at how those other medias are doing it and you know adapt some of their tricks i think part of how both role-playing games and video games can do that is they they have the ability to obscure information Mm -hmm. because either you have the computer or the game master so you can have all this stuff hidden behind the scenes so the players are making a decision without full information so in a lot of situations they do only have their morals to go on or whatever they're not they can't see behind the scenes be like oh well if i do this i get three resources but that's only two Mm -hmm. and just math it out so i think like the the crossroads system the way you have another player read it they don't necessarily have to read the results that you get so you're like here's your decision what are you going to do and you're you're doing that with the hidden information so you don't have as much to go on Mm. i think my favorite thing to talk about and i probably beat it to death when people ask me it's like coming from outside of this genre to start doing art for games is really fun um a lot of people like i like the big thing right now is like all the colleges have game art as a major now and like even when i go to conventions i see them um and it's like everyone's like oh did you go to college did you go for game art that's like well no no um you don't necessarily and oh god um so sorry anybody out there who's going to school for game art um i don't think you necessarily need to to pigeonhole yourself so closely i think a lot of the beauty that comes in like art for these independent games is like the fact that people are pulling from their own experience. So I wanted to be a prolific children's book illustrator at one point, and uh, I wanted to do editorial and magazine work at some point. And suddenly here I am doing games. Did I peg myself? Would I, to- would I have known that I was doing this 10 years ago? No. Um, but here I am. And it's, it's really fun to be able to kind of come from the outside and bring my, my experience into this sphere i think i don't know i like to think that it gives me a little bit of a fresh perspective um 
But what it definitely has done is shown that, you know, you don't need to be a gamer, quote, quote, to, to do this stuff. You, you just need to be passionate and you need to be open to, you know, doing the research and learning and asking questions. And I think that, you know, that, that for me is like really fun about this because everyone's like, well, how, how, how the heck are you doing this if you don't play games? And it's like, well, it's just like any other illustration job I've ever had in my life. You know, maybe I don't know about like trains and I get called to do a book about trains. I guess I'm going to spend like two weeks doing some in-depth research on trains same thing for game art, and I think that's really fun. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually the same thing for game design, too. The very first thing I do is, like, dig in. And again, like, with Dead of Winter, we... Like, I, I read books on, like, the psychology of survival and, like, people who had been through those survival situations and, you know, read about their experiences and the things that they went through. I mean, I mean obviously, I can read a bunch of books about zombies, too, and that helps some, but, like, when you start to look at the experiences... It, you can use it to help form your design. Yeah, and it's just again with the, it's like it's right up there with the representation. It brings so much more richness. Like you know, Beneath Nexus was was a fun project to work on simply because I got to learn about like these. I dove into this like article about um, tribes that languages are disappearing. Like National Geographic did this big write up about these tribes that speak this language, and it's only like forty of them, and you know it's dying out. And it's like I got to sit down and do this like really cool research on like anthropology, like anthropology for a board game. You know, that's really cool. And definitely you don't think of it as kind of like food for what you're growing, but it is. Everything is. And I think that's really fun. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's one of the great things about game design and a couple of other creative endeavors is there's no limit to what it can be about. Yeah. So you can you can go anywhere. Mm -hmm. You can research anything or it could just stick to what you know and do a lot less work. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. A couple just things I wanted to bring up on this subject. I just played Spy Club the other day. Have you Either of you seen Spy Club? Uh, yeah, I've played it a couple times. I have not. <laughs> so really interesting. So they have a bunch of these cards in it that I forget what they are, clues or something. But there's different categories. And like one category is blue, one's yellow, one's green, one's red, one's purple. But with the art, they didn't, they didn't just throw a filter over it and be like, okay, here's a picture and it's tinted purple. The art is very specific. Like the things in the picture are purple, but it's not a purple picture. Yeah. And it's like the way they constructed it is really nice. So you're looking at it like, oh, this is obviously yellow. But when you look closer, you're like, well, it's actually not. It's a bunch of yellow things on a perfectly normal table, but just that feels yellow. Yeah, I just pulled it up. And I thought it was a really interesting, uh, just the way they went through that. Yeah, um, definitely. I just, I just pulled them up. They are really nice. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's your year one uh, art school 101, like uh, your, your, your palette. And, uh, you know, your monochromatics um, with, you know, like I'm looking at the Garbage Man one right now, and it's a beautiful shot. And you have this wonderful bright orange safety vest right in the middle to keep your eye right on the middle of that image. And, you know, you have your cat that you're looking over his shoulder out the window to so the garbage guy. And it's it's compositionally awesome. You have a beautiful monochromatic palette with, like, just that one little pop to keep you looking. And that's that's masterful design that's like that's that person knows how to do their job yeah it's really well done yeah, yeah who's the who's the artist on that one i'm looking because i like him yeah i have to look it up now it doesn't say on the box <gasps> that's totally happened to me <laughs> so it's it's only a more recent thing and it's a shame that the artist is starting to become credited on the box and it's really a shame. Next step, the developer. Uh, I don't know. I like to stay behind the scenes as developer. I don't. I don't know if we should be credited or not. I mean, in the rulebook for sure. Yeah. Plus, I forget who said it. I think it was just on Twitter, maybe today. But they're saying they wanted um, expanded credits on Board Game Geek because you have like designer, publisher, artist. That's it. And there's, in lots of cases, I mean, certain games are just one person doing it all, but there's so many more people that work on it. Absolutely. And they're not, they're not listed at all. Like, I'm not saying front of the box necessarily. No, like, like, even with kids on bikes, I know when we did the deluxe version, there was just not enough hours in the day for me to do that, that much art, that volume and do it well. So we had the, uh, John and Doug brought in uh, extra artists and it's like, you know, they should get you know, on board Game Geek too, they should be be able to go in there and be like, 
artist and or like maybe I don't know if there's like denotation on like what they worked on because you know that gets confusing and then you get miscredited like um, one of the girls uh, was there at PAX this year and uh, she did some of the expand like the deluxe version art in the back and she's like and I felt bad she kept like deferring to me like well she's the artist and I'm like you did art too mm-hmm. you're you're here too <laughs> you know you could both be the artist yeah it's like it doesn't have to be like I'm the big artist and you're the little artist it's like no it, it took it was literally an army of people to get that work done and we got it done and it was it came together really nicely so yeah i mean you know i i sing all of your praises because you know i've done art direction on a couple different projects before but every single artist involved with that was like the absolute best because i think i worked with 10 well uh for the newer thing that we're doing i worked with 10 different artists but for that one i think it was like seven and you know everybody was awesome about delivering on time and you know working with our crazy schedule and everything else so and it can and it very easily can be like hurting cats like that that's like the real big joy of like when you find a good art director and good artists it it becomes like a really wonderful relationship because especially if you're trying to hit on a theme and you have multiple artists like how are you going to make sure that you know all this art in the book looks cohesive cuz of course you know I'm not going to be able to draw this exact same as somebody else but uh, everybody at least in that situation they did they they like brought their A game and it all looks like it belongs, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool to try to, you know, be like, listen, this is the main artist, but you do your thing, but kind of... Riff. <laughs> keep this tone. and Yeah, riff, exactly. That's it. Yeah, it's great when you have a team that can work together like that and the project really comes together. Yeah, and for the newer stuff, like, we're bringing back almost all of those artists plus a few new ones because we want to keep, you know, lifting more people up with the project, but... I was like, I have to give all of these people more work now because they're all great. <laughs> oh, and just to add back in, I did find the artist for Spy Club and it... There's like six credited on BGG. I'm looking at Renegade Game Studios and it has, and I'm going to butcher this because I think it's Polish, um, Bartolomiej uh, Kordowski. So nice job. Uh, good, good, good. Good illustration, man. <laughs> yeah, so back to uh, extended credits for things. I don't think there's a huge downside to it because every single person you have working on a project has the potential of having some following. Yeah. So if you like that person and you're like, oh, they did a new project. I am interested in that project. Absolutely. The downside would be if they're a bad person for whatever reason, then that would taint your project. But maybe don't work with bad people. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I, I can see that point. I mean, I guess I just... I look at it, you know, kind of like the credits of a movie. You know, it, it's rare that anybody watches the full credits and, you know, nobody has like a favorite, you know, best grit that they follow. So I don't... I mean, they might. They might. <laughs> they might. Maybe. May, I guess somebody might. I shouldn't say nobody. I don't know. I always kind of felt like, you know, as as a developer, like, I'm kind of a besi- behind the scenes person and I'm there to make the, you know, stars shine in the game. And But I, yeah, you're right. It doesn't have a downside. So I don't see any reason not to. I mean, I'm not necessarily front of box, but like, I, there should definitely be an easy way to research that. Yeah. Yeah. I think Board Game Geek's like a really good spot for that because it's it's encyclopedic. Like, I'm still figuring out how to work it. <laughs> um, but there, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be just like, hey, here's the credits for this game because everybody from the developers down to the people that, you know, maybe somebody wants to know where you got that really nice box. That printing looks really good and that box looks high quality. Where'd you get it printed at? <laughs> right, that's a, that's another thing, production. Yeah. Which I know Panda puts a little Panda on their UPCs, but mm-hmm. not every company does that. So it's just nice. You look at a box, you're like, I want to do this. Who did it? And you could find the illustrator, you could find the developer, you could find the manufacturer and get someone to do exactly what you want to do for your project. Yeah, it's it's the same like um it's the same thing like um when I was doing editorial illustration. Um everyone's like, Oh, you have to pay like a couple million like all this money to get on a listserv and get art directors because they don't want you to get their email because nobody likes getting cold emails but you know you tell people like look in the masthead of the of the magazines that have art that you like and you know oh like women's day does really cool illustrations and i definitely think that i could fit in with their stylistic choices open up the front page of that magazine and there's the list of everybody who worked on that magazine from you know the editors down to the the grunts in creative and you'll find somebody that you can reach out to and I think that same thing with games like oh I really like the way they did the layout here this layout this design looks amazing who did this or I really like the way this 
you know, these minis look dope. Like, who did these minis? Where did they get these minis from? And I think it's just all like a community aspect of like, you know, it's not, I, I don't think any, but I haven't experienced it at least personally, but I don't think the, uh, um, the indie kind of game space has been like guarded about like, everyone's been very open about like, oh yeah, I use so-and-so to get my cards printed. Oh yeah, I use so-and-so to get my boxes and stuff like that. So I think having that list would make life a lot easier for maybe up and coming developers, up and coming artists. Yeah, I think people, especially on the indie side, they're generally very open, but they're also generally very disorganized. Yeah, because it's like four people doing a million jobs. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the other part of it. But uh, we were talking about this so much, I looked it up. So it was John Brager who said it on Twitter yesterday. So John, thanks for bringing that up on the perfect day so that we talked about it. <laughs> All right, so moving back to theme from illustration. So I have, I have an opinion about a game. I don't know if it's an unpopular popular opinion, but I think it's something that a lot of people disagree with. And that is, I think Tigris and Euphrates is a very thematic game. Have either of you played Tigris and Euphrates? Nope. I'm going to pull it up, though. Uh, I have. So it's it's Reiner Knizia, and Reiner Knizia is very popular for having, quote, themeless games or abstracts. But I heard this somewhere. I don't know how true it is, but what I heard is that he starts from theme. He's a theme-first designer, but he's not a theme-first designer that relies on a lot of added-in theme, really. So it's not heavy in illustration, it's not heavy in narrative, but it's... I feel very much that the mechanics are so incredibly true to the story he's trying to tell, especially with Tigris and Euphrates. So it's little, like, abstract squares on a grid map that looks as abstract as you can get. But every piece represents a different part of the kingdom, when you connect, you have battles. So I feel it is a really thematic game that is presented abstractly. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so I actually feel the same way about Agricola. Um, a lot of people feel that it's, you know, really themeless and a draw Euro. But for me, it's a very, very uh, thematic game. And I feel like I'm a starving farmer every time <laughs> I play it. Um, and I think that the same thing can be with, you know, it is with Tidris and Euphrates, the mechanics all support that theme so well that uh you you can look past the art and i haven't played the newer version of it i think fantasy flight just released it right maybe i've only played the app i've never played the actual real one um but i again you know it's kind of like that play tester that i had that didn't realize that dead of winter was a zombie game i think it it's only some people who can look past the art. I know that my uh, the person that I work with, Ian Moss, uh, bad art will kill a game for him. Like he has no interest in playing Terraforming Mars, no matter how good it is. Um, and you know, he doesn't want anything to do with the Splatter Spiel game because they look like you know he says they look like print and play games. And it doesn't matter how good that game is, he can't get into it. So I think. You know, it's totally a thing that just some people function like that and other ones don't. I think what you said about you feel like a starving farmer, I think that might be the difference for these is it's not that you're reading a story or watching a story. It's so immersive that you feel like you are in it. The mechanics aren't you watching the thing happen. The mechanics are you actually doing those things. And maybe people just don't pick up on that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's something that I really picked up from uh, video game design is looking at games like, you know, Minecraft and other stuff that have, um, you know, emergent narrative, um, giving the players the ability to kind of hang their own story on the skeleton of the game is super important to making them feel that theme. Um, because, you know, as you know, we, we all, I think, want to tell stories in some way or another. And the more a player can do that, the better and the richer the experience is. I don't know. I disagree. I think Terraforming Mars looks really nice. At least the box. Oh, man. Uh, you should look at the cards. I, the board is... Uh, eh. So, I mean, my, my defense is that there's like 400 unique cards. And if they had to pay for art on all those, it would have cost a billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely stock art. Yeah. Yeah. Like from like from Shutterstock. And it's totally it's it's totally mismatched. Like one's just a picture of a dog in a field and the other one's like a, a net, the next one you have is a cartoon. Yeah, yeah. That so I think sometimes there is no getting around like you just can't afford the art or you don't have time to wait for that volume. But I think if you're picking stock art, you also still need to, you know, make sure that you're on message and, you know, if you're gonna go <laughs> with photos, go with photos. If you're gonna go with Stock illustration, find stuff that works together. Because, yeah, I'm, you're right. I'm looking at these. I'm, like, looking at a picture of a, a an actual picture of an actual barracuda. And <laughs> there's, like, 
stuff that is like painted. It's weird. The box is really nice though. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a lot of um reminds me a lot of Pokemon the card game. Oh my god, yeah. Cuz they like it's all Pokemon and it's all like they did the art for the game, which is even stranger, but it's so many different art styles. Like some look like CGI, some are cartoons, some are very poorly done. I mean, some games can pull that off. Magic certainly did. That's the thing they're moving away from in the newer sets, which older players have a problem with. Like the, the old sets were like very artistic, very different, but the new stuff is very homogeneous and very cohesive, which is nice from the point like it all looks it's from the same world like they have a bunch of artists still because it's a massive amount of work but it's all a very similar style like not photorealistic exactly but it's all like very high quality fantasy art and just every set is that oh really so no more weird phil flagayo no like none of, the, none of the watercolor stuff and all sorts oh, of like yeah. i love some of the early art but some of it didn't make sense. I had a gripe with like some of the early sets. People in my house play Magic, and I would always look through and be like, "How is this one card game when you have like this beautiful oil <laughs> painting and then this like weird pen and ink drawing?" It's like this is yeah. these are both nice pieces, but they don't exist in the same world. That bothers me, and I can definitely see how like it doesn't matter to some people, and maybe it's because I'm in the industry. It's just like, all right. Where's your art director? I know these guys have money for an art director. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've they've gone like completely the other way in the new sets. Like, everything's still beautiful. It's very high-quality art. I mean, they've got the budget for it, and they probably don't pay their artists very much. But it's just, it all looks very much the same. It lost, lost that feel and that style that the early sets had. But it's, I mean, it's better for some people. It's worse for others. Everyone has their opinions. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, magic is not hurting for players. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to reiterate. I am just such a stickler for everything looking like, you know, somebody was in charge of this and there is a cohesive feeling that all of these things belong together. I hate when it doesn't. <laughs> and that goes that goes to the elegance. Yeah, I think that cohesion is the important thing. Yeah, that's just personal aesthetic, though. And I'd rather it be cohesively bad. Yeah, yeah. Than all over the place. Like, Nations, Nations is one of my favorite games. I think it's a perfect 10. Um, but it has, like, again, like 400 cards that depict, like, various, you know, figures from history and, you know, locations and different things. And every single card in the game is unique. Uh, but they all look like they were drawn by, like, the designer of the game. Ooh. And they're not good. They're really <laughs> bad. But, you know, my defense is that's so much art. Like, you can't commission 400 pieces of art for a board game and make money. Yeah, um, definitely. Like, the first, like, so the first game I worked on, um, the guys who do Silver Clutch, um, we all went to school together. We all went, we all are illustrators. Um, I'm the only one who still really illustrates. Um, but when we put, when they put, Nexus together, um, our big huge pet peeve is like we have to pay our artists, even if they're like, you know, students because we can't afford big big guns here. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, it's like our budget is a hundred bucks, and we're paying for exactly a hundred dollars of your time. Do not give us any more than that. We understand, um, and I think that at least in our case, it, it, we had a, a like a nice well to tap from, but we tried to stay super honest with our artists. It's like, listen, we're we're looking to get quantity out of you not not necessarily quality and you know do not kill yourself on this art because you know we can't we can't pay you what, what it's worth so I know when I was doing when I was doing it I was you know out of school a couple of years and I was like you know what take my cut of pay and just pay the interns because they're students and they should know what it's like to get paid <laughs> um I have a day job it's fine <laughs> so it was just like I, I totally get just not having the money because art's expensive. It takes forever to make and it's expensive. Yeah, and I mean, it's a, it's entirely different conversation, I think, of like, you see a lot of people that want to run a Kickstarter and be like, well, I don't have the money for the art now, but I'll pay you after the Kickstarter. Uh, and like, uh, that doesn't pay the bills. And no. exposure, exposure doesn't pay the bills. Like, No, you die from exposure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so like it was super important with uh, Kids on Bites. Like when we talked to the artists, we wanted to make sure that you know we took care of everybody up front and you know out of our pockets rather than you know if the Kickstarter failed or whatever, at least you guys would all be taken care of. Yeah, and I think it's like a it's a it's an important thing. Like I talk about it, it's a big it's a big difference that comes from working in independent game design. It's like um, we all want to work, we all want to make games, we all want to get 
art to do. You know, we all want to work. And sometimes, you know, is a hundred bucks a finish enough? No, probably not. But, you know, if I'm like, no, my rate is 50 an hour, I'm not going to get work. But I also want to not undersell myself. So it's yeah. like, it's, it's really important. Like, I think there's like a, like a understanding that between like the, the developers and the, the, the game companies and the artists being like, Hey, I can only afford to pay you $500. What can you do for me for $500? And like, I can work with that. Like you're being upfront with me. You're telling me what your budget is. I only have a hundred bucks, Heather, and we need blank. And you know, John, <laughs> we came, we went back and forth. This is like, okay, uh, I can do this for that much money. And maybe we can yeah. finagle it and it won't be like a full illustration. It'll be like a black and white spot and that'll be cheaper. And we could just get more of those done. So it's like, it's really, yeah, we, we totally just had this conversation like three weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> right. We, we need this much done and this much time. And I know it's not good, but yeah. And it's like, I, you know, and it's, it's, it's a thing. It's like, you gotta, I think if, if both parties come at it, like I'm not trying to rip you off, I'm not trying to undersell or I'm not trying to, you know, undercut. It's just like, listen, this is the money we have. What can you do for us? Yeah. And, and that, that, that can serve you well in a lot of different ways and places in life, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of publishers would love to have staff artists. Oh yeah. Like, um, but the thing is like, you know, a, you're, Probably not going to use, well, so, I mean, some people like Red Raven Games. I mean, Ryan Lockhart does all his own art, but like their, their games all artistically look the same. Yeah. But most publishers like change their art style between games. And it's, you know, it's rare to find an artist that can do so many different art styles. And most publishers can't even, you know, afford like a full time graphic designer. And affording a full time artist is, you know, a dream, but unless you're like Fantasy Flight or Asmodee, it's just not something you can do. Oh, yeah. And even if like you're working like I am with Silver Clutch, like this is cushy for me because it's like we're all artists and I'm just, I live in their house. So it's like, Heather, we need, we need emergency art. And it's like, all right, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk this out later. But it's like, you know, that's not a reality for a lot of people. A lot of people, you know, don't know anybody. So they have to hire somebody and it's, it's being on retainer is expensive um mm -hmm. it's very it's prohibitive <laughs> yeah the like the board game industry is it's very much a lot of passion projects especially the smaller independent ones so like you mentioned ryan from red raven he does all his own art i'm sure if he was at an hourly rate he would be ridiculously underpaid but it works because he's doing it for his own company and he wants to do it yeah but if you're hiring out like an artist like that's their job they need to get paid they need to eat they need to live somewhere i assume but it's it's very hard to afford that especially so and like game design's the same way i mean if i was getting paid hourly for my game design i would definitely quit this job yeah and john you were talking about it on the um the show at metatopia this is your full-time job so you do have to factor in like how many hours am i putting into this work am i going to get a big enough return on it yeah and if you don't mm -hmm. you can't do it yeah, absolutely. But so much of the industry is is people that don't care to a degree. Like, obviously, you want to make money. Who doesn't? But it's about the project for a lot of people. And that I think that can really blur the lines of especially the finances and the people that want to do it full time or even as a side job that they want to get paid a reasonable rate for. Absolutely. You're comparing it to unequal things. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... It's, 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 it's definitely an undertaking. Um, you know, I, we answer a lot of questions from like people that want to get into it. It's like, well, you know, how do you, you know, how can I afford this? And it's like, sometimes you can't, um, it, which sucks. Um, it's, it's definitely like, I don't like saying no when people contact me for art and I try to work with people. Um, but every once in a while you get somebody who's like, this is my baby. And I've been trying to do this for like eight, nine, 10 years. And it's like, I, dude, I get it. Like I get it. But I also, you know, have other projects going on that I can't, you're not paying me enough to be able to, to say, Hey, Hey, silver clutcher. Hey, you know, kids on bikes. I, I'm going to need an extension because I got this really good other gig going on. Like that's, you know, I try to break it down like a itemized receipt. Like, Hey, you know, this is 
an hourly rate. You're I'm also you're also paying me to take time away from other projects I'm working on, other clients that I have um, responsibilities to. You know, my own free time. People think you work at home, and it's all like, oh, awesome. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's terrible because you're always working all the time. And as awesome as it is, like, ooh, I get to be an illustrator, and I'm I guess I can say I'm successful. Holy crap! Like. You know, you're never off the clock. It's 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 you have to really police yourself, and I'm definitely guilty of not policing myself. I work all the time at dinner, and it's weird. And you have to, you know, that that's money there. That's time away from like my outside times, time away from my family, it's time away from walking my dog. <laughs> I'm I'm real bad about it too. I basically live at my office. Like I thought, renting some office space away from the house is going to help me be better about disconnecting it, but. No, it's bad. <laughs> it's it's 11 p.m. and I'm still here because I got stuff to do after this podcast. Yeah, uh, I gave up my out of out of home studio because I was just there all the time. It's just extra driving on top of working forever. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I'd walk there right after my first job, and I'd be there till 11, 12 at night. And you know, if I wanted to stay later and get work done, but didn't necessarily feel comfortable about taking public transit home at three in the morning, then I have to cut my day short. You know, it's like. I like working till five in the morning because I'm crazy and masochistic. Um, can't do that when my studio is like a 45 minute walk away from mm-hmm. my house. And maybe I don't want to be walking around at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Or riding my bike. <laughs> or it's now it's <laughs> snowing and I can't leave. So yeah, it's weird. It's a, it's a weird thing. I mean, I, I mean, I'm the same way. I hate to leave work undone. And I mean, it's one of those things like it doesn't ever end when you set yourself up that way. And, you know, I had the problem of not saying no to projects for a long time. So it's tough with creative endeavors, though, because like you really sometimes you're in the zone. You don't want to stop. But sometimes you're in the zone for like 10, 15 hours. And that's rough. Yeah. And then if you stop and you might wake up tomorrow and not be able to draw hands. Every day I wake up, I can't draw hands. So that's normal for hey, me. Man, it's, it's hard. <laughs> Bikes and hands. <laughs> but uh, so on the subject of finances, I was just thinking, so things like game design, development, and illustration are all parts of a game that, I mean, fixed cost isn't the right word, but it's... It's a one-time cost, essentially. Mm-hmm. Whereas the production, like if you make 100,000 games, it's going to cost more than 50,000. So you get like some discounts. But once you get the illustration, once you get the design, it's done. So if you sell 10 copies, that's absolutely terrible. If you sell 10,000 copies, you're doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's never something you know ahead of time. Even like with Kickstarter, yeah, it's pre-orders. But now it's pre-orders where people expect you to have the art finished before you even get the pre-orders. So you kind of need a lot of upfront money in the hope that this will work out. Yeah, that's very difficult to juggle. Yeah, I think it's I think the thing a lot of people don't realize when they want to jump into a Kickstarter is that they can they're basically taking advantage of artists when they don't pay them upfront, which is a horrible thing. But there's so many artists that want that work that someone will take it. And that's super unfortunate. Yeah, it's it's a big, it's it's like a, I can't, it's hard because like we've all been there. At least creative artists people have been there where you know you're maybe just starting out or you're in a slump, and it's super scary, you know, to think that you might pass a jo- pass on a job because they're not going to pay you up front, and the promise of potential money down the line seems like a good option because the other alternative is no job, no future money maybe um and the 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 knowledge that there is always somebody that will be willing to do it cheaper is like kind of a tough thing to kind of police at least in the creative community like i tell students all the time it's like um the way it's taught at least when i was in school it's like oh you should be doing your illustration or your art full time and it's like that's really nice the people that get into in you know in-house jobs or you know, working with a company, but you know, that's not the reality for the vast majority of people. And those people might still be successful, even though they're not in-house artists or designers. And I, that's why I kind of push like, keep a day job that maybe, you know, you don't hate that's parallel to what you're doing. So you can tell clients like, Hey, I'd love to be able to help you, but if you can't pay me ahead, I, I really can't, I can't do this. And you know, you get to keep a little bit of your integrity. You get to keep a little bit of control of yourself. Because, I mean, I know if I didn't have my day job, 
I I couldn't guarantee that I wouldn't start taking jobs where people would be like, oh, we'll pay you later. And it's like, oh, probably not. <laughs> Which, you know, that's tough. That's a, that's a tough thing because it's like you're telling people how to live at that point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people that take jobs like that without the promise of pay or take them for way under what they're worth, you know, it does hurt the creative community. It, it hurts it a lot because then you have people that are, you know, expecting mountains of work for $5, which that's not fair. Yeah, it's a race to the bottom and yeah. the whole industry eventually collapses under that. And- yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's real and it's not exactly the same, but it's, you know, something I've seen with like, uh, you know, board games and, you know, uh, there's been a couple board games in the last couple of years that have like shipped their, you know, 80 pound game for like five bucks. And it's kind of the same thing. Like it sets these expectations for the consumer or, you know, in your case, your consumer is, you know, a publisher or whoever. But when they start getting that work done for cheap, they're like, oh, this is what it costs and this is what I'm going to pay. And that's not the reality of the situation. No. And then, as you said, it all collapses. Yep. was the example of Mech's First Minions, which, mm. like, set ridiculous expectations. I mean, it sold, it sold a $140 game for $85 and $30 shipping for $5. And, and that's what people are like, oh, yeah, they can do it, so everybody should. Which, I mean, people like in the industry that know how these things work are aware of it, but the general consumer thinks like, oh, you know, that's normal. They don't understand that it's, was it Riot Games with their absurd funding from League of Legends? So like, yeah, we can we can throw away the money and lose all of it on this project and not yeah, be hurt. and it's fine. Yep. Whereas, like, even, even a bigger company like Pandasaurus cannot do that yeah absolutely even asmodee couldn't do that i don't think probably not yeah i do see that a lot like on the kickstarters it's like why is this late and it's like hey man this stuff takes forever you know like especially if you're waiting for capital to pay pay people it's it's you know you try working for free and then tell me how fast you're gonna get done you know the stuff you need to get done on your to-do list you know it's like yeah and it's it's a one or two person company a lot of times and it's like why is this taking so long oh because no i sleep sometimes (laughs) sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I'm i have sorry. a full-time job <laughs> mm-hmm. yep and like shipping especially everyone has a very warped concept of what shipping should cost mm-hmm. and i always like to say like okay you don't want to pay this shipping how much would you want me to pay you to come pick it up yeah and it's generally not the 15 dollars in shipping <laughs> <laughs> yeah or oh you're shipping from like we shipped nexus from out of china and it was like a it was a nightmare um, and everyone's like, well, why didn't you ship you from the U S and it's like, do you, do you have the money for that? Like, I would love to support, you know, you know, the home, the home team, but oh boy, <laughs> that's quite a pretty penny. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, my timer is not exact for this recording, but I think we're about an hour now. So yeah, I, I see an hour 12. Yeah. That's about what I have. So why don't we wrap it up with just some final thoughts on uh, theme or illustration or just elegant games in general, anything that you wanted to bring up that we didn't go over yet? I really, I'm really, you know, like I said before, didn't see myself here five years ago, but I'm glad I kind of landed here. Um, a lot of, a lot of independent games is like essentially like a, like a candy store for me, like anything I want to draw. I can find a developer <laughs> making a game and saying like, I could draw that for you. <laughs> um, so I'm just, I'm just kind of starstruck that I'm here and I get to do fun illustrations. Like who else gets to, to draw fun stuff like this? So <laughs> keep making fun games and hopefully I'll keep drawing fun games and people can keep playing fun games. Yeah. Hopefully we'll keep you busy for a little while. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that, that last cover. Just sent that out for for some awards, so we'll hear back. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite one. That's my favorite one. I think it's mine, too. It's tough. Like, at some point, I'm going to get prints of all these from my office because I just want all this art around me all the time. Oh, God. Well, okay, speaking... You'll need a bigger office. (laughs) Speaking as somebody who does that, uh, you have to look at it every day. <laughs> Maybe it's different because you didn't draw it. Sometimes I hang up my own art and I like sit by myself in the living room, like, oh god, it's awful. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's why I stopped doing art stuff in high school because I couldn't deal. And I kind of do it with my own designs, but I try not to design something that I don't want to play over and over again. But I always nitpick every little thing. Yeah, and I think I think it's that it's you know whatever art you're doing, every I think almost every artist does that. 
Oh, yeah, because you made it and you know where you messed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just hope nobody will see it. Oh, no, no. My, my but they favorite, never do. Nobody my, ever does. My favorite is um, the guys I did, what I worked with with Nexus. Uh, one of the uh, expansion cards that we did, um, I just redesigned the existing characters. So there was like a, an art style I had to hit for the original release. And then for the expansion, I got to kind of go wild. And uh, the one I did when I got to have my own reigns here, I was like, yeah, this is killer. And everybody's like, nah, the original's way better. And I'm like, the original sucks, man. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then you have that to contend with because, you know, of course you don't. And, all, and like, you know, people that play the game, like, yo, like, Lunja is my favorite character. And I'm like, yeah, which version? And they're like, oh, the original. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> so, yeah. Fun, fun times. <laughs> John, anything to add? Just elegant games in general or anything? Um, no, I think we covered most of the topics that I wanted to talk about, so I don't think I really have much more to add. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining me and working through all the fun technical issues. I hope this sounds all right, everyone, because we're doing it through Skype with different recordings, and we'll, we'll see how it comes out. Let's end this with some contact info. So, Heather, if anyone wants to get in touch with you to follow your work or hire you or just say hi or whatever. Um, yeah, so my email is h-v-o-n because my last name is seven letters when it really only needs to be three um <laughs> so h-v-o-n illustration.com and uh let me look at what my twitter handle is because i'm crap at social media uh you know i'm a good millennial i'm on top of it <laughs> and my twitter is at capital h underscore v-o-n-n because somebody had v-o-n <laughs> it's crap it's crap um, I sometimes post art, but not all the time. Usually it's just pictures of my snakes and my dogs. So, you know, if you're cool with that, follow me. <laughs> cool. And John. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at John Gilmore. Or, uh, yeah, John Gilmore. J-O-N-G-I-L-M-O-U-R. Um, or you can find me on Board Game Geek at uh, the username is J. Gilmore. Um, and those are probably the best two ways to reach me. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you again for coming on, and have a lovely evening. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. Check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters, Chris Turner, Alan D. Eckert, Brad Batchelor, and Roscoe Shop. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at TheBGWorkshop and on Facebook at TheBoardGameWorkshop. And join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can get links to all of these and the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.